Welcome to Awaken to Grace. I'm Chad Roberts, and today we come to Mark chapter 11. And what an amazing chapter this is. If you have followed our series where we're preaching through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, you know that we're in a series called Walking with Jesus. And today we come to such a crescendo of the book. We come to the place where Jesus is going to teach us, speak to the mountain. And if you say to the mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, do not doubt in your heart, you will have what you say. Well, you know what? To really understand that verse, to really get it right, well, there are many other things we're going to have to understand beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. So we're going to take our time. We're going to walk through the verses of this amazing chapter. Oh, I've loved the book of Mark. And you know, going into chapter 11, I had so many questions. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Why did he cleanse the temple? Friends, we're going to see the divine order today. We're going to see the clear logic of Scripture, and as always, we're going to see how Scripture builds upon itself, line upon line, precept upon precept. I'm so glad that you're in this study with me. If you've missed any of our series, then download my free mobile app, Awakened to Grace. You can search your app store or Google Play or wherever you get your favorite apps and walk through this incredible book together with us and share it with a friend. Let's go to God's Word today. Mark chapter 11 from Awakened to Grace. All right, let's go to Mark chapter 11 today. Boy, I got some content to share with you. If you're brand new to our church, if you're a guest this morning or you're watching online for the first time, uh, you may not know I'm completely blind. That's why I don't preach with a Bible. So when I have a challenge like we're currently in, preaching through the entire book of Mark, and on, today, on days like today where I'm going to try to take you from memory through chapter 11, you follow along in your, in your Bible or your device and uh, help, me, help me not to miss anything. There are basically five sections of Mark chapter 11. And this is my premise today. This is what I really want you to see out of the Scriptures. I want to answer the question, what is real faith? We have invested all of these weeks preaching through each chapter of the book of Mark. We started in chapter 1. Today we're in chapter 11. And all through this series, we are building our faith. And today we come to a crescendo where Jesus expressively says, have faith in God. But what is that? Jesus says, if you say to the mountain... Be removed and do not doubt in your heart, but believe you'll have what you say. But what does that mean? How is faith different from just positive thinking? How is faith different from twisting the scriptures and, manip and just manipulating God? To, like, like God is a genie in a bottle. And if I quote this right verse or if I crack this code, then God must do what I ask. Is that faith? No. No. 
How is faith different than positive thinking? How is it different than manipulating God? How is it different from the sheep telling the shepherd what I need or what I want? No, 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 no. That's not real faith. And these are the issues that Jesus is going to address. What is What did Jesus mean when he say, When you pray, ask and believe that you receive then you'll have what you ask for. What in the world does that mean? Well, we're going to peel it back today. We're going to explore it today. But to get there, we got to understand the context. We have to understand what's going on in the chapter, beginning with verse 1, follow down to verse 20. So look in your Bibles with me. I want you first to note verses 1 through 11 in chapter 11. This is what is called the triumphal entry. Now let me teach just for a moment. Let me recap a little bit of what we've said because it's important to our text. Remember what the synoptic gospels are. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why are they called synoptic? Remember we've said that they are the same content but seen through a different perspective. Synoptic, S-Y-N, as in where we get our English word synonym. So it's going to be the same stories. You can find the triumphal entry in Matthew, and he'll give his account. In Mark, which we'll see today, and also in the book of Luke. Sin, S-Y-N, the same, the synonyms, the same content. Optic, perspective, eye, vision. What does it mean? It's the same content, but seen through different perspectives. So what is very helpful when you study the Gospels is if you will read them in parallel to one another. You'll you'll learn details in Matthew that you won't find in Luke. You'll gain things out of Mark that you won't get from either Matthew or Luke. So it's helpful to understand it is synoptic. The same, but through a different lens, through a different perspective. Well, when we come to the triumphal entry here in this section, verses 1 through 11, I want you to know this about the triumphal entry. If you're going to take notes, it is the most precise scripture that is prophesied in the Old Testament. They're all precise, but, you know, let me use a better word because it's all precision, as I'll show you. Maybe a better word for us is that the precision of the text is stunning. Let's say that. It is the most stunning portion of Scripture. See, what Luke tells us is Jesus tells the Pharisees, if you recognized your hour of visitation. See, something happens in the Gospels. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees get really angry, when you see them get really indignant with Jesus, a lot of times our Western ears are not picking up what's going on. But you know what has just happened? The reason they are so angry is because something major out of the Old Testament was just fulfilled. Prophecy just happened. Something enormous took place. And they're angry about it. So anytime you see the Pharisees really mad, stop and dig right there in the text because there's treasure there. 
When Jesus does the triumphal entry, I want you to note this. It is the most stunning precision in the Bible. This was prophesied, if you just want to note this, I'm not going to go into full detail because I covered this in our Revelation series last year. And I went into great detail. You can go back, you can look for the Revelation series on the Awakened to Grace app. If you choose the sermon called Daniel's 70 Weeks, I explain it all. Down to the very day, down to the very hour that Christ fulfilled this prophecy. Let me just give you the spark notes for right now because I don't have time. I won't ever get through chapter 11 if I go into too much detail on this. But here's what you need to know. The triumphal entry concludes a major section of prophecy. In Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, the Bible teaches what God calls 69 weeks This was 400 and some, maybe 489, 490 years, whatever. You have to go back and listen to the Daniel 70-week sermon. I can't contain everything. Okay. Whatever the 69 times 7 is, that would, what is, somebody good with math, tell me. How many years is that? Oh, don't fail me. Oh, come on. How many? 400, thank you. Okay. I, I can't get into the weeds. Here's the point. The death of Christ. This is called the Passion Week. We go into the triumphal entry. This is going to be the last week of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. It stops what Daniel called the 69th week. There is one week left to go in human history. It's called the 70th week. And when does Jesus say that 70th week begins? It's when a world leader named the Antichrist is going to sign a covenant with Israel. All of this ties together. And when does Daniel say that this 70th, when when does he say that this time period begins is 69 weeks? It's when Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, restored. That happened under Nehemiah. So from the time of Nehemiah to the day, to the hour that Christ did his triumphal entry. It is at 69 weeks fulfilled. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, if you understood your hour of visitation, if you understood the word. Now we are in a period, we are in a parenthesis of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and Romans 11 calls it the times of the Gentiles. This is the Gentile, born-again, blood-bought, Holy Ghost-filled church. This period is from the day of Pentecost to the harpazo, to the rapture, to Revelation chapter 4, the catching up of the church of Jesus Christ. And we don't know the time. Only God Knows that time. But when the harpazo, when the church is caught up, then this world ruler is going to step to the stage. He'll sign a treaty with Israel. And then that clock, that 70th week, will once again begin to tick. And what God began with his people Israel, Romans 11, God will fulfill 
during the tribulation period, and he will save his people Israel. Now, what I want you to know for our purposes today is when Christ gets on this colt that had never been ridden, I want you to write this down. He fulfilled Zechariah 9, verse 9. He literally fulfilled the Old Testament Scripture to precision. He not only fulfilled Zechariah 9.9 by riding the colt that had never been ridden. He not only gave the word of knowledge of where to find the colt. But he entered Jerusalem at the very time, the very year, the very month, the very day, the very hour that Daniel 9 prophesied it. And a great transition is taking place. Now, if you'll understand this, my friends, you're going to understand the rest of the text. The triumphal entry is setting up the greatest transition in history. So, the people cut palm branches. They spread their coats. They put down palm branches. They're crying out, Hosanna. This is fitting for a king. Why are they singing, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Why are they singing this? That is what's called a Hallel Psalm out of Psalms 118. They are quoting Psalms 118. It is the Old Testament being fulfilled right here in the pages of our Bible. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. The Mount of Olives is a short distance from where the temple was. It's only 300 yards. Everything in Israel is very small. As Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives on the colt that had never been ridden, and the crowd before him and the crowd behind him is praising him as king, and they're recognizing him as king, guess who's watching from the temple? His enemies. The enemies who not only want to kill him and are not only plotting to kill him, but we'll kill him by Friday. This is Monday. And this begins what we call the Passion Week. What's interesting is as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, as we read throughout all the Gospels, <clears throat> through the previous accounts, up to this point, it's as though Jesus was a bit cautious around the authorities. Not because he feared them. No, 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 no. But because... The time was not right. When Christ died on the cross, do you realize it was at the precise moment of the Passover lambs being killed? The time was not right. This day when he rode into Jerusalem <clears throat> is when the priest would begin to examine the lambs. And now Christ, being examined by his father, will become the ultimate, the final sacrifice for sin. I can't express to you the weightiness of this chapter. So follow me in the text. So verses 1 through 11, he rides into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on a colt that's never been ridden, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, fulfilling Daniel 9, verses 24, up into the parentheses. Now, what's going to happen next? The Bible says that Jesus is hungry. 
and he sees a fig tree in the distance. And the tree is full of leaves, and he goes to find fruit, but there is no fruit on the fig tree. Now Mark is going to tell us something that I've never quite understood. It's really made me scratch my head. It says that there were only leaves and that there was no fruit. There were no figs. And so Jesus curses the fig tree and says, May no man ever eat from you again. And then Mark tells us a huge detail. And he says, And the disciples heard it. Now, this is highly interesting. First of all, I want you to note this is the one and only time in the recorded Gospels that Jesus used his power to bring destruction. The only time that he ever used it in a negative sense. I want you to note this. A fig tree always represents Israel in the Bible. And more importantly, there is going to be a link to their temple. There's going to be a link to the unrighteousness of the way that they were doing religion and the cursing of this fig tree. Now, why was it filled with leaves? See, Mark is is not writing to a Jewish audience. Mark is writing to the Romans, and he's going to help us who are Gentiles. He's going to help us understand what's going on. Why was the tree filled with leaves but not fruit? Well, in Israel, even to this day, leaves began to appear on fig trees during the months of March and April. When was Jesus crucified? We know by Passover records, we know he died April 3rd, 33 A.D. So if he died in early April, we know that the fig tree produces its leaves in March and April. It does not produce the figs until May and June. So what did Christ expect? It's not the time for figs. You know, I read this and read this and read this. And I think, Lord, I know you're sinless, but I'll be honest, it sounds like you're hangry. Were you that hungry that you became so angry that you just cursed the tree? No, not at all. Why did he cleanse the temple? Was he just angry? No. There's an eternal lesson here. So, understand this. When the fig trees begin to bring their leaves forth, What comes is the fig, and the fig will be in a round ball, almost the size of a marble. And they are edible. Some even have a bitter taste to them, but nonetheless, they are edible. Jesus needed energy because he was about to exert an enormous amount of energy when he cleansed the temple. So Jesus looks for these Round marble buds. They were the buds of the figs. They had not blossomed yet. What Jesus found in this tree was just fancy leaves with no fruit at all. The point, if you want to write this down, the point of the cursing of the fig tree is that it was fruitless. It bore its leaves but didn't bear any fruit. 
And what he's going to do, church, he's about to go to the most holy site on the earth. He's about to enter the temple in Jerusalem. And even though he's not going to find full fruits of righteousness, he should at least find the buds. Even though it's not the full fruit, he should at least find find something of righteousness in the temple of God, but he finds nothing. All he finds is fancy and polish and big leaves, and that's it. The cursing of the fig tree represents the fruitlessness of religion. It represents the fruitlessness of man making a mockery of the things of God. So now he's going to go into the temple and watch how fascinating this is. This is verse 15. Watch verses 15 to verse 19. Jesus goes in and there's money exchangers everywhere. Now what what are money changers in the temple? Now, let's understand a little bit about the text. because it, it, it calls this whole chapter to come alive to us. If you and I say we lived in North Israel in this day, let's say we lived right on the Syrophoenician border, that Lebanese border, and it was quite a journey from there for us to go to Jerusalem. And you and I made our pilgrimage once a year to the holy city, to the temple, to make sacrifice for our family. Well, that's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of money to make that travel. You and I are going to have to take animals to sacrifice without any blemish. If we were, uh, you know, in good financial shape, you and I would take a lamb. Most Jewish boys understood what it was to raise a lamb, have the lamb live with them, and take it on the road to Jerusalem and have it sacrificed. That's why when John said before he baptized Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every Jewish male, their ears perked because they used to carry their little lamb with their fathers to Jerusalem. Historians tell us that Jerusalem would have swelled to well over a million people during Passover. This was a nightmare for Rome. The greatest thing that the Roman authorities feared was an insurrection was a rebellion. And now you've got the Jews coming, not only from all of Jerusalem, but from the entire world. They're making their pilgrimage. They're descending on Jerusalem. It's going to swell to over a million people, which was enormous in ancient days. And they're going to feel that nationalistic pride of Israel under the occupancy of Rome. And so when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives on a colt that's never been ridden and crowds are chanting, Hosanna! You better know Rome got nervous. The chief priests got nervous. The Pharisees were nervous. The Sadducees were nervous. And all the bigwigs got mighty, mighty nervous because it had insurrection written all over it. If you and I were going to travel to Jerusalem and it was going to swell to over a million people. And by the way, I looked it up just out of curiosity. That was enormous in ancient days. But even today, as of 2020 was the last census, Jerusalem's population is 945,000. 
over 2,000 years later. Imagine what it was in ancient times to swell to over a million people. Josephus, the great historian, the Jewish historian, uh, shortly after the time of Christ, he recorded in 68 AD that that year for Passover, Jerusalem saw 225,000 lambs slaughtered for sin. Friends, we're talking about a whole lot. That's 225,000 households, not to mention the poor people who couldn't afford a lamb. So here's here's what Jesus is walking into. The temple should be a house of prayer. What it's become is a den of robbers. You got money changers everywhere. Why were there money changers? If you and I lived in North Israel on the Syrophoenician border, whatever currency that we carried to Jerusalem in our wallet, you couldn't use that currency in Jerusalem. You couldn't use it at the temple. Whatever money you bought in the marketplaces around Jerusalem, you couldn't use in the temple. You had to exchange your money for temple money. And guess what came with that? An upcharge. Well, could you imagine if you were poor trying to carry pigeons from North Israel down to Jerusalem and holding on to those things? Imagine trying to cover hundreds of miles carrying animals or a lamb or something. No. You know what most people did? They bought their animal at the temple. Well, guess what opportunity that made? Vendors. And guess what else dirty happened? Let's say you did bring a little lamb, and it was all that you could afford. Well, then I had to go through inspection. And guess what many times they did? They didn't pass the animal for inspection. So guess what you had to do? You had to cough up some money. And you know what had happened? They had taken what was meant to be holy and they had taken what was meant to be right before God and they had made an enterprise out of it. And here are all these vendors everywhere making hand over fist and profits were as high as they could be. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into. And let me tell you, friends, a holy and a righteous anger came into the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark gives us, an I think, an enormous detail in verse 13. See, the law made provision. The Old Testament law made provision for people who were poor. Do you know what they could sacrifice? Pigeons. That was a poor person's sacrifice. And Mark tells us a little detail. Mark says, and he turned over the tables and the seats of those who sold the pigeons. Why did Mark isolate the pigeons. Now, I don't know this for a fact. Uh, I've not heard any Bible commentary say this, but it's just my hunch. Do you remember when Jesus was born to that little couple from Nazareth in the town of Bethlehem? And his earthly father was a simple carpenter. Do you remember what sacrifice they made? Pigeons. You know why? Because Joseph and Mary were very poor. And I think that when Jesus saw particularly them selling the pigeons, his mind went back to mom and dad and what little they had and how people were being taken advantage of in the house of God. And let me tell you, he wrecked the whole place. I think of this courtyard with 30, 50, 80 people in. No, 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 no. There were 
hundreds of thousands of people. And Jesus flipped the tables. He threw the money everywhere. I mean, he went on a rampage that was holy and righteous before his father. Why? Because he said, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. And he said, you have made it a den of thieves. You know what he's quoting? Jeremiah 7, 11, A direct quote. All through chapter 11, prophecies being fulfilled. Now here's what I want you to understand. Here's where I get to the application today. Major things are going on. Prophecies being fulfilled. Daniel 9 is happening. Zechariah 9, 9 is happening. Jeremiah 7, 11 is happening. All kinds of things are going on. And Jesus, when they leave... So the next day, uh, verse 20, I want you to look at that with me. The disciples walk by the same fig tree that was cursed the day before. And who remembers what Jesus said? What's the text say? Peter. I've argued throughout the entire series why I believe that Peter is the author of the book of Mark. I believe Mark uh, penned it, but I believe Peter dictated it. I've argued that through the entire series. Not a hill to die on. It's just my personal opinion. And Peter remembers that Jesus cursed it to its roots. Well, he cursed it, and then it says it withered to its roots. And Peter remembered. What's the point? Let me just give you a few more interesting things, and then I'll get to the major application. There are five temples that the Bible mentions. Did you know that? Five temples. There was first the temple that King Solomon built. That was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then there was the temple built after the Babylonian captivity. And then that was destroyed between the covenants. And then there is this temple that is in the day of Christ. That was Herod's building that he built. This was the crown jewel of Judaism. This was everything. The temple was everything. Jesus said, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he meant his flesh, his body, but they thought he meant the temple. They were wrong. However, Jesus did pronounce a curse on it. And here's what I want you to know. The fig tree is tied to their religious life. It's tied to the temple. And what happened? Jesus cursed it. It was going to wither at its roots. And what happened shortly after Christ died, fulfilling Daniel 9, 24 to 27, it says a prince will rise up and will destroy Israel. And what happened on A.D. 70? Christ died in A.D. 33. And what happened in A.D. 70? Titus, the Roman general, utterly destroyed Israel and he destroyed the temple. 
Jesus said in Matthew 24 that not one stone would be left upon the other. Friends, that was fulfilled to precision. Titus was so greedy for gold as they melted gold in the temple. The gold had seeped in and between the cracks of the rocks of the temple floor. And Titus commanded his army to rip the stones out of the floor just to get the gold. And the words of Jesus, literal were fulfilled. And Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. And what are the implications of that? That is Daniel 9, 25, 26 being fulfilled. And now for the last... Think about this. Now say amen if you're with me right now. From A.D. 70 to May 1948, the nation of Israel, the state of Israel did not exist. From AD 70 to 1948. And do you know what the thrilling thing is of our day? You know what the thrilling thing was of the book of Acts? Is that the church of Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel coexisted. Friends, that wasn't the case for the rest of history until our generation. And now from, from the early church... Until now, the nation of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ coexist on the earth at the same time. That's prophecy being fulfilled. But it's only going to be for a short while. Because very soon, the trumpet of God's going to sound. And the church is going to be raptured. And then God's agenda goes back to his people. Israel. It's all prophecy. It's all going to be fulfilled. So the temple was destroyed. That was the third temple on the earth. Now, the next two temples have not happened yet. The fourth temple, the Bible teaches in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 and Mark 13, the Bible teaches that there's going to be a fourth temple during the 70th week of Daniel. Friends, that's the seven year tribulation period. Now, how in the world is there? Do you know where the temple is going to be? Where the Muslim dome of the rock sits now. How in the world will that happen? Because let me tell you, this coming world ruler, this man who's going to ride on this figuratively white horse, according to Revelation chapter 6, This man who's going to be a master at diplomacy. This man who's going to bring peace to the world. This man that the Bible calls the beast. The Bible calls him the antichrist. This man is going to emerge on the world stage. And he's going to do what no U.S. president will ever do or can ever do. He's He's going to bring peace to Jerusalem. And my personal belief, what I think is going to happen, is I think Israel is going to be so starving for security. Oh, don't let me get into Russia and Ukraine right now. I just bought a website domain last week called Russia'sEndgame.com. Don't go there yet because it ain't built yet, but we're building it right now. And do you know what Russia's Endgame is? Read Ezekiel 38, 39. Russia's Endgame is Israel. And Israel is going to be so 
hungry for security and safety, and they're going to be so hungry for their temple. Do you know what this Antichrist, I believe, is going to be able to do? He's going to be able to trade Israel's security for the temple mount. And how he's going to negotiate it between the Muslims and the Jews, I don't know. But that's why the world has never seen a man like him. And he'll have the ability to do it. I'm way off in the weeds. Let me get back on track. So verse 20. Here's my point. The fig tree withers at the root. There's never been a temple again since since AD 70. And there won't be. Until the catching away of the church and the 70th week of Daniel begins. That would be the fourth temple. Just for your knowledge, the fifth temple is prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. Starting with chapters 40 through the rest of the book. And that fifth temple is going to be the millennial kingdom temple. And what a treasure and what a joy that will be. But what happens now? What's going on in the church world? What about in our day? Where does God dwell? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You are not your own. You've been ransomed. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God which in your bodies which belongs to the Lord. We now are the living sacrifice. We don't have sacrifice animals. We are a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Where does Christ dwell? In our heart. Who does the Holy Spirit infill? Believers. We are the very temple of God. Amen. He no longer dwells in temples made with hands. He dwells in us, the church. So when Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins at the house of God. Is, could this be where Peter learned it? Watching Jesus cleanse his temple? Watching Jesus cleanse the courtyard? I bet that's where he learned it. And now we are the temple of God. Let God examine us. Let God examine. Let God cleanse His church. Can we say amen? Amen. Now, watch the great transition that happens. Verse 22. So now, rather than looking to a religion, rather than looking to a system, rather than looking to Judaism or looking to temples or looking to sacrifices or some kind of religious ritual or ceremony. No, not anymore. Jesus is going to introduce a better way. Remember, Hebrews calls the old covenant obsolete. There's a better covenant. There's a better way now. And look what Jesus is going to teach us. Verse 22. Have faith in what? Religion? Have faith in church? Have faith in yourself? No. There's only one object. There's only one source. Have faith in God and God alone. Nothing else. Now, friends, I want to show you something right here. 
I want to show you what the Lord is teaching me right now in my own faith, in my own prayer life. Verse 23 is an exhilarating verse. Jesus, after cleansing the temple, after cursing the fig tree, knowing that all of this is going to become obsolete, knowing that there is a church coming, there's a Holy Spirit, a comforter, a guider that is going to infill us now that everything's going to be totally different and completely new. Now look what he says. He says, truly, I say to you, if any man says to this mountain, be removed, Be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says. He'll have what he says. Oh, my goodness. What is Jesus saying? And then verse 24, he says, therefore, that's a a transition word. That's the conclusion. He's saying, this is the point of what I'm saying. Therefore, when you pray, ask, believe. That you receive, and you'll have what you ask. Friends, that's faith. But where does it start? It starts with verse 22. We get real excited about verse 23. We get real excited about verse 24. But let me ask you what the difference is. What's the difference between manipulating God? What's the difference between trying to crack a code with Scripture? What's the difference between positive thinking and real, authentic, genuine faith? What's the difference? The difference is in verse 22. Have faith in God. Friends, my faith is not in my prayer life. My faith is not in trying to quote the right verses. My faith is not in trying to twist God and make him cry uncle. My faith is not in trying to make God feel sorry for my needs. No, my faith is not even in the outcome. My faith is in God and God alone. That and nothing else. Friends, when we get that straight, when we get that right in our heart, then we're not going to pray to God trying to manipulate Him, trying to get what we want like it's a giant wish list for God. No, we're not going to pray that way. We're going to come to God as He is, a good and a generous and a faithful God. We're not going to be like the persistent widow that sees God as an unjust judge. We're simply going to ask. What an invitation from Jesus. When you pray, ask. Why? Why is there such an invitation to ask? Because, friends, it's not religion. It's not systems. It's not ceremonies. It's not rituals. It is faith in a good God. That's the foundation on which we ask God to intervene in our life. So note what he says. Go go back with me to verse 23. If any man says to this mountain. Now what's a mountain? In the Old Testament, mountains represented difficulties. Anybody remember what was said to Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4, 7? Who are you, O mountain? Stand against Zerubbabel. Who are you, O difficulty? (laughs) Oh, let me tell you, you can speak to your problems today. You can speak to your difficulties today. See, I don't know about you. 
I find it fascinating that Jesus tells us to pray in verse 24, but he don't tell us to pray in verse 23. He says, speak to the mountain. If anyone says to the difficulty, if anyone says to the problem, be cast into the sea, it'll be done. Now, why does God say that? I want you to think about this. Out of all of God's creation, I mean even out of the stars and out of the moon and the planets and out of all the climate and the atmosphere and agriculture and animals and out of everything that God has ever created on this planet. Let me ask you a question. What has the ability to just like God think and articulate and communicate and speak out our thoughts? Only those of us who are created in the very image of God. Amen? Don't you tell me that we are part of an animal kingdom. Oh, no, 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 my friend. We are created in the very image of God. Amen? Because of that, how did God create the world? He spoke it into existence. And this is the kind of dominion, this is the kind of authority that Jesus gives us to speak. Not pray to it, and not pray about it, but to speak to it. Why? Because when you do that, you step into the rightful authority that God has given you for as many as believe On him to them gave he the right, the power to become the children of God. And you're right in your authority. This is not about religion anymore. It's not about rituals or systems. It's about having that closeness with God Almighty, that our faith is not in faith itself. Our faith is not in our prayers. Our faith is not in our our doing it right. Our faith is not in cracking some code. Our faith is not that God is a genie in a bottle. It's not that I want to manipulate God. It's that I am going to simply take God at His word. What is faith? Faith is fully trusting in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. What's real faith? It's when I don't lean on my own understanding, but I lean into God as hard as I can, and I rest in Him, and I trust in Him, and I say, God, I can't control the outcome. I don't know how things are going to shake out, but God, I know that You're above it all, and I know that my faith is in You alone, and therefore I take Your authority, and I take Your dominion, and I speak to this mountain to go in Jesus' name. Hmm. I think a lot of times we're waiting on God to do really big things. And I think a lot of times God's waiting on us to act in obedience. And what is obedience? To speak to the difficulty. To not accept it. To not let Satan slap you around at his will. No, you resist him and he'll flee from you. Amen? 
I know in my heart, and I want to say this pastorally. There are many of you right now that you're losing ground that's already been won by Jesus. And the reason you're losing it is because you've settled for whatever Satan wants to do in your life. You've settled for a bad marriage. You've settled for your children being wayward and prodigals. You've settled for things. You know what this verse does? It engages me in the work of God. It engages you in the work of God. What is God's responsibility? God's responsibility is to do things that I humanly can't do. But what is my responsibility? To also do things I cannot humanly do. And that's put my faith in God and to speak to the mountain. A lot of us are sitting on our hands saying whenever God moves, He'll move. Whenever God works, He'll work. Whenever God changes things, He'll change things. Whenever God answers my prayer, He'll answer my prayer. Whenever God feels like it, He'll feel like it. And we just sit here like we have no skin in the game. No, my friend, you are to speak to the mountain. You've got skin in the game. And most of us who are waiting on God, I think God's really waiting on us. Can we say amen today? All right. Speak to the mountain. Don't doubt in your heart. And to be thrown into the sea. Where's your sin? He casts them as far as the east as to the west and buries them in the depths of the sea. You know where your problems are to go? The same place your sin went. And let me tell you, you stop settling for sin, you'll stop settling for problems. And that's when your life will change. That's when transformation will come into your praying. You have to engage the fight. You have to engage. Speak to the mountain. Verse 24, note what he says. Therefore, here's the conclusion. When you pray, believe. That you receive. Now I love this because this is not the natural order. If you ever hear me as your pastor teach you anything. Understand this. Faith is not logical. You'll you'll never reconcile logic with faith. Because faith is a realm that is above logic. Say Chad explain that. Well let me explain it with Isaiah. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are far above our thoughts. Now, come on, right? If everything depended on your logic, then why would you need God? No, it's God's way, not my way. And God's way is different than our way. See, my way would be this. Ask. I receive. And then it builds my faith. Ask, receive, let me see the proof in the pudding, and then I'll believe. Show me the money. Let me see the proof in the pudding. Isn't that man's way? But no, 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 no. Do you know what God's way is? Faith is a reverse order. Faith is you ask, and then you believe. (laughs) Then you say, no, no. God is the proof in the pudding. 
I don't even need the outcome when I have God. My faith is not in the outcome. My faith is in God. You understand what I'm saying? I ask. I believe. Why? Because those who come to him must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Right? Then I receive. But see, most of us got the order reversed. We're asking, thinking when we receive it, then we'll believe it. Friends, you'll never have it. Because you're not doing it God's order. You have to ask, believe, and then, then you receive. And you say, oh, but Chad, now when, when do I receive? Well, let me, let, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell us Americans something. Can I speak to us for a minute? God isn't Amazon Prime. God does not answer your prayers like you ordered a package from Amazon Prime. Sometimes you got to tarry. Sometimes you got to wait on God. Amen? But God is in the waiting. Sometimes you got to be patient and you got to let patience have her good work within you. James chapter 1. You got to let patience have its full effect in you. But see, that doesn't change your belief. That doesn't change your believing. See, I believe with all my heart, God is going to open these eyes. Now, see, I've already received it. There's, apart from the daily obedience that I'm to walk in, there's nothing else to do. I've received it. Now, when it arrives, when it manifests, when it happens, when these scales come off and God does whatever, however, the Lord is going to do this creative miracle. I, I can't give you all those details, but here's what I know. It doesn't change what I believe because my belief is not in the outcome. My belief is in the object. My belief is in the source of the outcome, which is God. And now like David, seeing See, King David said, I wait for you all the day long. Oh, I used to be so impatient. I was the most impatient man you had ever met. It it, it frustrated me how impatient I was. But through this, you know what the Lord continues to bear in my life? The fruit of patience. You know what I do now when I get impatient? I used to drive fast, walk fast. I did everything fast. Now I'm <laughs> Now I have to wait for people. And it's so frustrating. I'll be sitting in the car waiting on my kids, waiting on Sadie. I can feel my blood pressure going up right now. (laughs) And you know what I'll picture? You may may think this is so silly. But you know what I'll picture in my mind? I'll picture a a great old big apple or peach of just patience. And in my mind, 
I'll just take a bite. You know why? Because you know what I've learned? Patience is sweet. It tastes sweet. It tastes good to not always be angry. Not always be frantic. Not always be in a hurry. Not always feel like everything has to be perfect and at your fingertips and in line. It tastes good to not worry about things. It's that fruit of patience. God doesn't work like Amazon. And your prayers aren't always going to come on the next day. They're not always going to ship to your front door. But listen, that don't change our believing. And neither does that change our receiving. Our receiving. You believe and you receive. Not because, not because you deserve anything. But because God is who he says he is. When your faith, what what do I mean? When your trust is in God and nothing else. You will have the ability to ask, and what an invitation that is, to believe, and how special that is, and then to receive. As I close today, the rest of the chapter is going to deal with the authority of Jesus. They're going to question his authority. And as we go next week into chapter 12, we're going to see a man that Jesus says, You're not far from the kingdom. Well, I can't wait to teach that. But today I want to ask you, where's your faith? In some odd way, is your faith in how you pray? Some of you feel like if you would pray better like other people can pray, that God would hear you more. No. Is your faith in your behavior thinking that if you could Just get it right for once. Maybe God would answer. No. Friends, your faith must be in God. And Him alone. And you say, Chad, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. That God is who God says He is. And God will do the things that God says He will do. When your trust is in God is who He says He is. God will do what he says he will do that's when you will have faith in God maybe Jesus needs to cleanse some things out of you today maybe you need to turn him loose in your heart and give him full access to your life maybe he needs to cleanse your thought life some of you should be mighty embarrassed by the things that's on your phone the secrets you keep the lies you tell Jesus wants to cleanse you today and see when we walk out of this building today and we shut the lights out God's not hanging out here all week He's inside of you. So when you scroll your phone, that's God looking at your phone. When you open the door to that affair, 
you're subjecting the Holy Spirit to such things because He lives within you. When you settle for anger and frustrations and Let God cleanse you today. Because God don't dwell in temples made by hands. God wants to dwell in you. And you know what the amazing thing is about God being in you? (laughs) You see, now when you pray, your prayers aren't trying to travel umpteen, umpteen, umpteen miles. No. You're praying to the God who dwells here. God who lives within you. The God who can comfort you as no one can comfort you. The God who can provide for you as no one can provide. The God who can soothe you. Who can love you. You're praying to a God who's near you. Emmanuel. God with us. Why in the world would we not want to be cleansed? When we host the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Your spirit will not always strive with man, Lord. But in this day, in this hour, in this church age, your Holy Spirit lives within us. What a gift. Don't let me abuse that, Lord. Don't let me neglect it. Don't let me take it for granted. But like Psalms 139, know me, Jesus. Search me. See if there is any wicked way within me Oh, God, Psalms 51, cleanse me, cleanse me. I want to be your dwelling. Let me have faith in you and all of your goodness. Let me pray, let me ask and seek and knock. Before I ever see the result, before I ever see the answer to the prayer, let me glorify you and let me please you in the believing and the receiving of such great things. So, God, publicly, Publicly, I take this issue of blindness, this issue where I have laid down in the green pastures. I have drank beside the still waters. You have restored my soul. God, while I am mighty content, 
while I have the joy of the Holy Spirit, I ask, I believe, and I receive physical 2020 eyesight. I call those things that are not as though they were in the name of Jesus. If you enjoyed today's broadcast and would like to hear more great content, you can always download our free mobile app, Awaken to Grace, where you can request prayer, find sermons, articles, blogs, music, podcast, as well as support us financially. You can also visit either of our websites at www.preachingchristchurch.com or www.awakentograce.com for more information about our church or our resource ministry. Thank you for listening to Awaken to Grace.